I'm Mark Hennick, and this is So-Called Normal. The following is an excerpt from my new book, So-Called Normal, a memoir of family, depression, and resilience. It's available now worldwide, and I'd originally shared this excerpt with Psychology Today in uh, November of last year. Dr. Corey asked me how long I'd been having thoughts of suicide. All the time, I answered. I have them every day. If this was what it was like to be a typical teenager, I didn't want it. Gradually, I'd lost the ability to ignore the thoughts. I couldn't avoid them, unthink them, or escape them by the stream in the forest. I'd been circling the drain for months. That evening, after many hours in the emergency room, waiting to be seen, waiting to be assessed, waiting for a room assignment, I was transferred to a stretcher and wheeled down to the psych ward. I didn't understand why that was necessary. There's nothing wrong with your legs, my mother would say whenever I asked her to do something for me that I could have easily done for myself. The staff at the hospital didn't give me much choice. It's procedure, the nurse said. Unit 1C was one of three psychiatric wards in the basement of the Cape Breton Regional Hospital. It was for the acute patients, less severe and persistent cases, though it was still a secure ward like the other two. We buzzed the intercom at the locked double door and waited for one of the night shift staff to let us in. There was a fourth ward for mental health patients, but it was usually closed due to the staffing shortages that were common in the few remaining hospitals on the island. I noted that the cafeteria and the exit, should I need it, was a short distance down the dimly lit cinderblock pastel painted hall. So it wasn't all bad news. Across from the cafeteria, however, was the morgue. We arrived at room 1034 at around 8 p.m. My mother didn't stay long, but she said she'd come back to visit me the next day. The nurse who got me settled introduced herself as Jane. The deep, wise creases on Jane's face were framed by a blonde bob haircut. She looked a little like my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Peterson. I liked Mrs. Peterson, and so, by unconscious association, I automatically liked Jane, too. She was kind and welcoming. When I first arrived, she asked me all the same questions and took all the same notes as the psychiatrist before her, and the crisis worker before that, the triage nurse before that, and informally, the guidance counselor before that. It was my first time being admitted to a psychiatric ward, but I'd already repeated myself so many times, and I had almost all the questions and the answers memorized. I'm always thinking about killing myself, I said to Jane. I told her how I'd been more agitated and sensitive lately, and she listened attentively, dutifully. Then she searched me for contraband. Things such as cigarettes and lighters weren't allowed, which was fine since I didn't smoke. Most pointy things, like pens, were banned too. Shoes with laces were a definite no-no. They had strict rules about what and who was allowed on the unit, and when. She had me sign a number of papers, which she probably explained. It was all a bit of a blur that I didn't really understand, including a disclaimer absolving the hospital of any responsibility in case anything was lost or stolen. She probably could have gotten me to sign just about anything. I was a desperate 14-year-old kid, alone on a psych ward in the middle of the night. I wasn't exactly 
inundated by free will. Nobody told me how long I'd be staying. When I asked, they were noncommittal about my commitment, ironically. Well, that depends on how well you're doing, the nurse said. Don't worry about that now. That's easy for you to say, I thought. You know when you're leaving. My antidepressant dose was increased, and a hypnotic was added to help me sleep. It made my mouth taste like metal. I'd never been drunk before, but this is what I imagined it felt like being drunk. I passed out and still felt woozy for a while after I woke up. None of the wards were designated for children or youth. I shared a room with a much older man. When I arrived at the room, he was lying on his side, cocooned in blankets in his bed by the door. He didn't move much until sometime after midnight, when he woke me up by suddenly sitting bolt upright in his bed and screaming, We will overcome! We will overcome! We will overcome! We will overcome! And as his screams grew louder and more panicked with each incantation, I woke up with a start, confused and afraid. But my body felt too heavy to get away or even to protect myself. I was panicked, but I was locked in. Then, as suddenly as he sat up, he lay down again and went back to sleep. The room was silent again. Even medicated, though, I had a hard time going back to sleep. Nobody had told me it was going to be like this. I don't belong here. I'm not like these people, I thought. I'm not crazy. I wrote that passage while spending uh, more than a month at a Trappist monastery in the woods. That's where I wrote most of the first draft. And that piece made it through largely unedited, I think, from the first draft. We, like most of the book, made uh, um, some some polishes uh, to the wording. And we, we changed the names, uh, I think, of all of the people in that passage. We changed a lot of names in the books because in the book, rather, uh, because they weren't relevant to the retelling of the story, who the people really were. Um, all that was really relevant was the impact that it had on me. And I still remember that experience in the psych ward so distinctly. I remember all of the admissions, but that one in particular, they say, you never forget your first time. <laughs> well, for me, my first time on the psych ward uh, uh, burned a, a pretty deep hole in my in my memory and in my mind. You know, it's funny, I, people go to these places for help and I'm glad that I did, I'm glad that I went. I, I wouldn't be who I am if not for who I was. I say that all the time. And in fact, anybody who's ever heard me speak live, they probably heard that story uh, in, in a bit more abbreviated of a fashion because it was so important for me, I think, in my personal development. And I think I, I needed to include it in the book, and as I read through the uh, medical records that supported it, really had a better sense of um, the repetition of retelling my story so many times and living it, and, and the, the very fragile first uh, uh, stage, I think, or the very fragile first stage of developing an identity as a mentally ill person. When I didn't identify like that before, and I don't identify like that now, actually, uh, these are all just disparate parts of, of my experience. But in the, those very early days of being introduced to, uh, as a person with a mental illness, I think those were formative experiences for me. Anyway, I wanted to, to share that with you. If you want to read it, 
You can pick up the book, uh, So-Called Normal, A Memoir of Family Depression and Resilience in Canada. It's available uh, at Indigo and Amazon and most other bookstores in the United States. It's at Barnes & Noble, uh, again on Amazon and most other bookstores in the UK at Waterstones, Foil, uh, uh, most others. So you can get the book uh, pretty much anywhere. It's available now, So-Called Normal, A Memoir of Family Depression and Resilience. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Hennick. <laughs>